You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to Strong Towns. When I first heard of the idea of shared housing, it was from a friend of mine. In fact, uh, a guy we were interviewing for a job said, I have this co-housing relationship. And I have to admit, my first thought was, that's really weird. Like, I don't get it. We hired him anyway, and I've gotten to know him. He's a dear, sweet friend. He's a great colleague. And I've come to really appreciate a lot about the living arrangement he has. Today, uh, we're actually going to chat with someone who's an expert on co-housing, an expert on shared housing. She wrote a book called Sharing Housing, A Guide for Finding and Keeping Good Housemates. Her name is Anna-Marie Pluar. She is an, a consultant with expertise in group dynamics, interpersonal relations, and in structural design. She comes to us from Vermont. Anna-Marie, welcome to the Strong Nuns Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm not sure how you and I got connected, but I'm glad that we did because we've had some nice conversations now. And I'm, I'm excited to chat with you about this. Let's talk about, I think right off the top, people have a lot of maybe different ideas of shared housing, everything from college roommates to uh, hippie communes. When you say shared housing, what, what are you talking about? That's a fair question. So shared housing, I am talking about the very simple idea of people living under a roof together, sharing a kitchen. And from there on, it is up to the people who are sharing what kind of relationship and how they do it. I don't call it co-housing because a co-housing is a specific idea around having individual homes and then a commons house. But a lot of people these days are using the word co-living, and I like that word. Uh, The co-housing people are trying to hold on to their word for what they're doing. But co-living, shared housing. And it's interesting because I just sort of fell into working on this out of my own life experience. So I wrote the book because I had been living in shared housing for most of my adult life. I'm 68 now my generation, we lived in group houses when we were post-college, during college, after college, graduate school, all of that kind of stuff. And what happened for me when I was in my 30s is that I was in an apartment that I adored in the Cambridge Somerville area. It was a four-bedroom apartment. It was close to transportation. And it was a three-person house. We had a guest room I stayed in that apartment for eight years. People came and left. One of my housemates stayed for four years, I think. I paid $350 a month for rent. And I just could not imagine going into an apartment by myself and tripling that price or whatever it might be. So I just lived in shared housing. Then... I left that for a relationship, moved down to the Washington, D.C. area. When that relationship broke up, I found a single mom to live with that was sort of in my community. Not the 
best relationship. It was okay enough. When her boyfriend came back from living overseas, I'm like, okay, I need to move. <laughs> it's not great to be the third person for a couple. So I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And as I said at the time, the universe wasn't offering me the obvious shared housing arrangement. So I thought, well, I know I don't want to live by myself. I've always been very clear about that. And that is different from most people in our society, I realized. So I thought about it. I was in my 40s and I went, oh, I buy the house. I get the housemates. And I did that. I bought a true fixer upper in Silver Spring in 1995 and lived in that house for 10 years. It was a four bedroom house. I would have two housemates. People would come and go. And it was while I was living like that, that my friend Deb was complaining about her finances over the phone. She had a horse and a house. And I said, well, you have an asset, use it. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, rent a room in your house. And I wish I could, I was the, an actress enough to do what she did, which was, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, and yeah. I did something like, well, I do. And she went, oh yeah, you do. Would you coach me? I said, yeah, sure. And I started thinking about it and it sparked the idea. The following day, I was on a bus from Silver Spring to New York City with my laptop. I spent two hours banging out the outline for the book. I just banged it out. It was clear as day to me. And then did nothing with it. Left that house, moved to Vermont, was working as an instructional designer until the day that I heard myself say to myself, as I walked from the bedroom to the bathroom, I can remember it well. Are you ever going to do that project? And I kind of went, oh. And I realized that it would be a deathbed regret if I didn't. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do it. Interestingly enough, that week I was hanging out with some friends post a meeting and one of them said, guess what? I'm going to write a book. And, I went, mm. and the other one said, I'm going to write a book. And I went, oh, wait, hey, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and one of them, who has become a very dear friend, board member, Lisa, turned to us two and said, what do, how about we create an accountability group? And we did. Nice. Yeah. And that made it possible for me to write the book. It took about three years. I just worked at it a little bit every day and we'd meet once a week. We each got 20 minutes of feedback and their feedback was hugely helpful. And I would rewrite and they'd say, okay. So that's how the book got written. But I sort of feel like the universe, which is the word that I use. Some people say God, Yahweh, whatever, was saying, do this thing, please do this thing. So the book came out in 2011. And then I was like, well, okay, what am I supposed to do with this book? Why? How, how am I, what is this doing? And I found out pretty quickly that the 20-somethings were not interested in reading a book about how to do 
and the book is about finding and selecting a good housemate. It's literally the concrete process of how do you do this? What do you ask? Why do you pay attention to? How do you get ads out? What do you, all that. So I wandered around with this for a while and then realized that there is a huge population of my generation, boomers, single women specifically, who are living alone and some of whom never had kids, some of whom are divorced, widowed, what have you, who are looking at retirement going, oh my God, how am I going to make this work? And so I have been focusing on that audience specifically because I am deeply wanting them to realize they can share housing. Um, but for the chronology, I wandered around trying to figure out how to do this. And finally, in 2017, allowed myself to agree with myself to create a nonprofit. I didn't want to have a nonprofit organization. I had done that once before for something else. But I finally was like, yes, this is social mission. As soon as I did that, people's reaction to me changed. They kind of understood, okay, this is a nonprofit. Uh, so we are now Sharing Housing Inc. The website sharinghousing.com has all of our resources. The sharinghousing.org kind of shows our nonprofit face. It's a little confusing and it's sharing, not sharing housing. I decided to make it active. So here I am working hard on advocating for people to share housing and trying to educate people about how. So now I'll come back to your original question. People's first reaction is, oh, my God, never. Just like yours. And I think that's a problem in our society. Let's talk about that problem. The more that I've learned about this, and I hope I'm not idealizing in a nostalgic sense or in a global understanding sense, but it feels like a, a lot of the problem is very Western and maybe even very American. And, and I would even go so far as of me say, there's a part of me that feels like this is a very like Scandinavian immigrant Minnesota thing. And I, I know this is a common thing throughout the country, but you know, there's an observation that I've gotten here through my church that, that we here in my part of the world are very warm and very friendly and very inviting to people until it gets to the point of asking them into our homes. And then we become very shy and reserved and standoffish. And I, I think that is a very fair criticism. Can you talk a, a little bit about maybe why people are so hesitant and, and what is it about our culture that makes that so? Because I, I suspect that's not true in other cultures, and I suspect that's not true throughout history. Here, here. It's not true. And in fact, we're wired to be connected and we're wired to live in tribes, which we did for millennia tell pretty recent. Yeah, it's very Scandinavian not to invite people into your home. That's, that's definitely the protection. I think what's happened in our society is that we've so emphasized independence that we've lost track of our need for each other. And I don't want to say codependence because that's gotten a bad word. But we need each other. 
Um, there's a book I have over there by Mary Pfeiffer called In the Shelter of Each Other. People are desperately lonely in this country. It's amazing to me that people don't realize that you need to have people in your life and that one of the easiest ways to have people in your life is to live with them. Hello. But we are afraid. And one of the things that is so true is that people who live with other people simply do it. They don't talk about it. They don't think about it as special. They just, this is the way I live. Uh, people who have had bad experiences of shared housing go, oh my God, I'll never do that again because they've had a bad experience. But what I ask is, okay, so you had a bad boyfriend. Did you give up dating? Some people do, <laughs> but you know, the fear factor is first thing. And then trying to get past that to say, hey, it's really nice to have somebody around who cares what's happened to you. Or as Margaret Mead said, um, she thinks that it's an almost universal human need to have someone who wonders where you are when you don't come home at night. Yeah. You have a, a, a chart in the book that struck me as being one that I would find very helpful. I'm, I'm a, let's write out the pros and cons. My, that's my wife too. My wife, anytime we make a major life decision has to write down every pro and con. You, you've got this little chart. And I, I want to say that this book is so accessible and so helpful. Um, the chart is, you know, literally what I want and what I'm worried about. And I can see myself going through this list saying, okay, here's, here's what I want out of this relationship. Here's what I'm worried about. Can you talk a little bit about what most people start out wanting? Not necessarily what they end up appreciating, but why do people do this? Like what, what would prompt someone to get started in this? Absolutely. And I want to point out that that chart is a worksheet and those worksheets are available on my website for free. People need to sign up, but then they can get the worksheets. Most people start home sharing for the benefit of the finances, honestly, because they're, go they're going, oh my gosh, how am I going to make this work? Well, we are, and we are in a housing crisis. I mean, there, there is this like crisis of affordability. And I, I think the remarkable, yeah, the remarkable thing about it for me has always been that, you know, for the last 20 years, it's not big cities. It's not small towns. It's not growing places. It's not shrinking places. It's literally everywhere. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And 27% of all households in this country are single occupancy. Yes. Yeah, that's a very 27%. Right. One out of four adults lives by themselves. And many of those houses have extra bedrooms. So, how, so it's not hard to convince people who don't have housing to live in shared housing. They're, they're ready, they're going to do it. They want housing. It is hard to convince the people who have homes to open up, as I say, their, their house and their heart 
to having somebody in their home. There are matching programs that do find, I call them householders, and that could be also apartment holders, but the people who have the lease, who are paying the mortgage or the rent and so on, when they're older and they realize they need help. So seniors who get to that vulnerable place of, I can't carry the groceries out of the car to my house anymore. I'm worried about falling. Um, I need some help with snow shoveling. People like that begin to start thinking about home sharing. But I want people to start thinking about it when they're younger than that, before they get to feeling so vulnerable, when they are adults with agency and can make their own decisions. Because home sharing is intimate, okay? This is the thing. When I first started this, I would go, but it is. You get to know something about people. Is that a loss of privacy or is that the building of community? Is that being belonging to something? I think people don't realize what they can gain out of shared housing, that sense of belonging, of somebody who cares, somebody who notices what you're doing, somebody to have dinner with or a meal. But people start this with for, for the financial benefit. And they often stay for the companionship benefit. Well, I was going to ask that because it does seem like the people that I know, and it's a very small list of people who are in these arrangements, are often people who at this point in their life could probably afford something else. I read a book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal, uh, which is a, one of the best books I've ever read. It was just a fascinating book. And he started out with discussing relationships where the parents live with their, you know, the, the kids live with their parents and then, you know, the grandparents will be there and cousins and like these larger families living under one roof. And I was feeling very nostalgic and feeling like this is, this is a great community building thing. And then he kind of ripped it apart. And he said, you know, in the West, particularly, but around the world are growing affluence is a sense being used to buy us. And he, he didn't knock this as a bad thing. I think he didn't, it wasn't a debate he wanted to have, but is basically buying us privacy. I was listening to this on audiobook and I shut it off and I just walked for a long time because I know, and I recognize that with privacy also comes, you know, this, this huge increase and it's reported and documented in this country in loneliness, in depression, in suicide rate, Talk a little bit about why someone who didn't need the money might want to do this. Or, you know, do you run into people who, in a sense, maybe they're frugal and maybe they recognize that having two spare bedrooms is a waste? You know, the same way we recognize throwing away plastic is a waste or, you know, uh, not recycling your cardboard is a waste. But what about people who realize that like heating two extra rooms in their house and not having anyone live there is a waste? Talk to me a little bit about those other motivations. So I say there are five benefits to living in shared housing. And we've talked about cost. The companionship piece is really big. And it's really important that people choose well 
who they're going to live with. That's what the whole book is about. That's what my course online, Sharing Housing 101, tries to teach people. How do, how do you do a screening conversation or it's conversations to find somebody that you can live with that's going to be comfortable? I felt a little bit like I was telling my, trying to help my daughters figure out who to date. And it's like, you, you, you know, this person may be exciting, but you really don't want to <laughs> them longer because it's a, you know, it's a little bit, I, I felt a little bit like that where you're like, okay, a lot of it was very common sense. Like you have to be compatible with this person. I just like how it kind of walked you through and, and asked you some very simple questions that like in the moment you might not pause and, and deliberate on. When we look at social isolation and the people suffering from social isolation in this country, and you look at all the causes for social isolation, the number one reason is living alone. Absolutely always living alone. So I would like people to be able to find a person or more that they like and respect Those two things are really important. And I don't have any quick, easy way to say, how do you like somebody or how do you respect? But you you can get a feel for it. You like and respect them. And their ways of living at home are compatible enough that everybody is comfortable. So you have to have a good, real conversation, conversations ahead of time about how you use your home. What's your standards of cleanliness, neatness? How, are you, how do you use your kitchen? What are the routines? How do you feel about guests, the different kinds of guests that you might have? Noise. I call it noise is sort of my general television use, music, all that kind of stuff. Now we have headphones and screens these days is different, but all that stuff. Noise guests, tasks. How do, how's the house get managed? And how are bills going to be managed? And if, in fact, you have clarity about what those are and agreement, you can live together. And the next piece of this, which you're sort of probing for, is that I believe that we really are one family. And when we like and respect somebody, and our ways are comfortable and compatible enough, and we're not self-centered, and that's rampant in our society, so that's a problem. But if we're not, then we naturally develop a loving relationship. It is who we are, fundamentally loving people. And so, It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in the first five weeks, 10 weeks. But my dream, my vision is that two people, three people living together somewhere in year three or four turn to each other and go, I can't believe we didn't know each other. You know, that kind of comfort. That's my hope. That's my vision. It's why I work on this, because I do believe that more people need love in their life. It's as simple as that, but it's as big as that. Yeah. 
there's a part of me that when I when I was thinking about this idea quite a few years ago, got hung up, and I don't want to say with like the sex sexuality part of it, but like I envision myself like living in a house with my wife, and I may walk from the bathroom to our bedroom not fully clothed. And there's a certain like casual intimacy that you develop with your spouse that also was very easy for me to like carry over to my kids. You know, I, I, we don't like run around naked every day in our house, but like, I'm not worried about like my daughters uh, getting dressed in their rooms and, you know, me knocking on their door and saying, Hey, how's it going? You know, we're very comfortable with each other. And maybe my like prudish Norwegianish uh, Minnesotan ways are coming out here, but but I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like w- what is this like? This has got to be very strange in terms of like the the intimate human connections, like say that I would have with my family. How does that work? Because I have seen families like mine welcome others in others who begin as complete strangers, but, you know, have gone through a process of discernment where you're like, I think we would be a good fit. My colleague's house has, I would say he is in a very similar family situation to me, a wife and two kids. They have a younger family with a a, a newborn and they have an older couple uh, with no kids in the house and they all are co-housing together. And I've learned to respect it and not just that, but like really admire it in many ways. Is this gut inclination silly? Is it common? Is it valid? Like, how do you react to to this? Yeah, I'm absolutely going to say it's valid, of course, um, because that's sort of its first level. So one of the things I say is that you have to have a conversation early on. So if you are somebody who wants to dance naked in the in the in the kitchen, <laughs> um, I, I, I have a friend who said that said, I want to dance naked in the kitchen. I said, well, then go live with somebody who likes naked in the kitchen. <laughs> so that's on one side. The other side is the first thing people always say is I need my privacy. OK. And I say your privacy absolutely is the rooms that you have rented, okay? And most people, when I do talks, say, yeah, they could live in shared housing if they had a bedroom, a bathroom, and a sitting room that was their own. And I would love to see buildings built like this, okay? Uh, Strong towns. I would love to see communal buildings with common kitchens and bedroom, bathroom, sitting room to be private. That said, when your door is closed, nobody should be knocking on the door. And in fact, my friends, uh, Jean, Karen and Louise bought a house together and they wrote a book about it, which is how I found them or they found me called My House, Our House. And without actually talking about it, they had this kind of thing where if my door is closed, do not disturb me. If my door is left cracked open, I'm indicating that I'm open for visiting. Right. So that was the that's one of the ways that that's taken care that people deal with that. Um, Related to that, I think that what was once my privacy becomes our privacy. 
right? So that's kind of the development of the relationship. I would like when people say I need my privacy, I want them to kind of ask themselves about what? What is that about? And if it's because you drink two bourbons a night and you don't want anybody to know about it, well, just go find somebody who also drinks two bourbons a night. It's somebody else, find company, you know? Don't cause yourself to, 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 <laughs> to cut it out, you know? And just be honest about don't it. Don't rent to the church lady if you are going to feel judged continuously. Absolutely not. Yeah, I get That's, it. I get it. You know, you just have to, you have to do. So I realize as I do this, that I'm asking people to be honest and authentic about who they are as they go into the selection process. And the way what I'm teaching people is what they need to pay attention to and how to pay attention to the red flags, to the, uh oh, no, this person's not going to work. Well, I was going to ask you about that because- any relationship can work out really well and any relationship can go bad. And I think that's maybe a good place to ground this. You know, people get married and there's a very high divorce rate. People buy houses and find out they made the wrong decision. This is a decision that can be unwound if it goes poorly a lot easier than, than, than many of those other decisions. <laughs> yep. For some reason, like, this seems in some context to be higher stakes than, say, a marriage, which it's clearly not. So I want to lower that for people as they're thinking about this, but what, what are some of the reasons why these things don't work out? Like what, what have you seen where people made a mistake and like, this was a bad situation? Yeah. Um, it's still true that every story that I've heard of a bad housemate set up, if I can ask them what their selection process was, I will discover that they didn't have one or they were inefficient about it, or they overlooked a red flag. One of my worksheets is, what do you have to have in your house to make it comfortable for you? I once was interviewed by, on a radio show by a woman who said she tried shared housing. And the, I could do the long story, but the short version is she can't stand dirty dishes in the sink. She saw it on the interview. She said, oh, I can live with that. Six months later, she was moving out because she couldn't live with it. So being clear about what you can live with and what you can't live with is so fundamentally essential. And it's essential to pay attention to your inner wisdom. I believe in your inner wisdom. So there's the woman who didn't like the way somebody responded to a question. And it's sort of like little red flag. And she said, oh, I can live with it. She couldn't. Getting clear in the interviewing selection process. So I want people to go slowly. I don't want people to make a quick decision. I mean, 20 somethings can, and they move around and so on. 50 somethings, 60 somethings don't really want to have to change too often. So take it slowly. Do you like and respect each other? Can you have coffee? Do you having a good conversations or not? How does that work? Probation, try it out. Don't move the furniture. Live there for two weeks. Is this working? Have conversations about it. So I have in the book, I write about four principles for living in shared housing. And my first principle is the golden rule. If you can live by the golden rule, 
shared housing can work for you. If you can't, my guess is you're not going to be a very good housemate. <laughs> right? There's a, there's a lot of things you might struggle with in life. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I, I'm, I'm assuming that the basics have been taken care of. Cleanliness, neatness, kitchen use, routines, guests, noise, tasks, and bills. You've already agreed to the big things about living together. So in the give and take of a day, you know, if you've got something like, I wish you would put away whatever it is or whatever it is. So living by the golden rule is really important. My second principle, and it's interesting because I did talk to your, your community person who lives in co-housing and he has the same rules. It's so interesting. I call it do it while it's easy. And what that means to me is you speak up when you feel a little it, that, that Ooh, I didn't like that. You speak it then at that moment, you grab it or close to and don't let it fester and become a big deal because you're living together. And that other person can either discover, oh, I really, yeah, that's a problem for you. I won't do that. Or, oh, well, let's figure out how to do this differently because I really did like, do want to do that kind of thing, whatever. So that's two. Do it while it's easy, golden rule. Your room is your own, which is the one I've already mentioned, which means that there is no reason ever for a housemate to be in your room without an invitation, ever, ever. So, I mean, I had a friend who rented a room to a friend and she left all of her dance costumes in the closet. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. You have to leave, make that room completely that person's room. And then my fourth is came to me through my, through actually Chris, who I lived with for four years in Somerville. Chris, when he interviewed to come and live, be my housemate, he said, and we have an incest taboo, right? And I was a little shocked. <laughs> and I went, uh, yeah, uh, but it was so helpful. Oh, my gosh. Because he lived with me for four years. We were both in our 30s. We were both single. We got very close. We knew a lot about each other's families. And I would have been very confused about what kind of a relationship we had. So I'm very clear that you need, you should never sleep with your housemate, <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the things people worry about when they think about having somebody move in, like, what's the sexual tension going to be? How do I manage that? Well, get rid of it. Incest taboo, your family living together. Um, and with those four principles, I think people can live well with each other. How often do you see multi-generational living in this way? Is there something easier or harder about that? Is there something... I was going to say better or worse, but I, I think that's not quite the right framing. Can you just talk a little bit about inter it? It feels like we do have in this country a number of factors that make this very logical. And I, I'm just going to list two of them. The fact that our, our house sizes compared to the rest of the world are bizarre. I mean, Western Europe, if you've ever been, is a ridiculously high standard of living. And our houses are like two and a half times the size of them on average. 
And so, you, you know, I've always thought if we just degraded ourselves down to the, the lifestyle of Parisians, uh, boy, would we be living difficult lives, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that would be a, a place that would be much smaller than what we have now, but, uh, you know, in a very different way. So you have this reality that Americans have like a ton of space. And you also have this reality that there's a lot of young people who are delaying getting married, delaying, you know, relationships, uh, committing themselves to, to work in ways that they hadn't before. Uh, there's a lot of older people who are living longer uh, you've got a, a, a generation of people who are approaching retirement or in retirement that recognize now that not having any savings was a really bad decision. Uh, that's hard to hard to make up at that age. It feels like there's a whole lot of factors that make the multi-generational aspect of this make a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the special challenges that go with multi-generational and, and is that, is that an optimum arrangement or is that, uh, you know, not. I don't have a particular strong feeling either way. Um, I am very much about helping people create what works for them. All right. I really want that. Uh, I think multi-generational makes a lot of sense. Younger people can get help, uh, can, can help older people. Older people need younger people's digital skills. <laughs> um, I right, know that right. one personally. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, a, there's great potential sharing. And a lot of home share match programs do, in fact, try to work on older with younger and sort of reduced rents in exchange for work. And, and that kind of thing. In those relationships where, where the householder, the older person who's expecting to, get, to have help in exchange, I really want people to get clear about what, what it is and when it is and kind of work out a contract because it's easy to let things slide once you're comfortably in a house, you know. I think multi-generational is wonderful. And it's very interesting because of COVID, um, we are seeing more adult children living with their parents. I don't have numbers for that, but I'm getting it anecdotally a lot more. They sort of left New York City and they went and moved back in and they're in the basement apart, whatever it might be. But I think that it makes a lot of sense and it would be great. I brought up this experience to you when we first chatted and you had an interesting reaction. I want to bring it up again and, and let people uh, marinate on this because I've been able to spend some time in Santa Ana, California, uh, which is a city very different than the one I'm from. I discovered it is the fifth most dense city in the United States in terms of population per square foot or per, per square mile or however you want to measure density. But when you go to Santa Ana, you're going to see very few buildings that are more than four or five stories tall. It is a very thick place. And when you get to meet people, uh, you start to see that the relationships in a housing unit are very unlike what we see here in like central Minnesota. A family unit will be, uh, and these are largely Hispanic immigrant families, a lot of them, a high, very high percentage undocumented. 
a very low percentage of automobile ownership, a high percentage of like walking and, and biking and what have you in a community that is not necessarily from a design standpoint, the most amenable to that, but you'll have a family that will be mom, dad, kids, and then, you know, grandma uh, who's widowed the uncle who's uh, you know, between jobs, uh, the cousin who's just moved to America and is looking to get set up uh, a couple family friends who they've developed who needed a little bit of help. I think it's easy to impose an affluence narrative on that. They do this because they're poor. They do this because they're immigrants. They do this. And, and I know some of the reaction that I've seen to communities like this in Minnesota, where we have high immigrant populations, is they are dismissed as like, this is how those people live, right? In the, in the most dismissive way. There's a deep beauty that I've found in it. And I've actually found that even when a lot of these communities are given the option to, let's say, live like Americans, they choose not to. I, I just want to throw that out there and let you react to it. I, I felt for a long time that there's something that we're missing. And this you know, shared housing feels like part of the answer to that, yet it does feel very elusive to many of us. Yeah, I think it is elusive to many of us. And I think we've lost track of what it's like to be family. I don't remember what I said to you when we first met, but I'm saying this now. Family takes care of its own. Family reaches out. Family supports each other. One of the things that I noticed over Twitter somewhere, and I haven't, haven't verified this, but somebody said, that half of the homeless people in the country were foster children. It means that's because they don't have anywhere to go. They have no place to go that's going to take them in. And I think that it is our detriment that we have lost this idea that we take care of each other as family. And, you know, yes, you're right. You're totally right. This is a American European. Europeans also live alone a lot. It's sort of a white person's. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about that lately. No, I, I think it's a fair statement, right? Um, it's this myth of independence that we have in this country, which has gotten so out of whack with what we need. <laughs> because what we need is to be connected to each other and we need to belong to something and we need community. I'm on this campaign. It's a very quick shot. I think but it's quick shot campaign because people are, it feels very unreal. Like, what do you mean shared housing? But there are people who want to do it there. And the more people who understand that this is really an option, the more people there will be available to do it, you know? So it's that kind of a thing. Have I answered your I wanna- question? No, you have. I, I want to ask you a last question, and then we're gonna. I, I want to share how people can get in touch with you and all that. But it, you, your book is sharing housing: a guidebook for finding and keeping good housemates. I, I want to flip this 180 degrees, and I'm sure you you've thought of this and can't answer this. But if I want to be a housemate, how do I become a good housemate? Like, what what do I do? I'm 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 a person who's looking for a place to live. I'm uh, you know frustrated by the cost, the options, the availability. How do I become a good housemate? How do I present myself to 
maybe even people who are not aware of this, this idea or have never pondered it, how do I approach them and get them to, to consider me as a housemate? What, what, what would you do if you were coaching someone in that way? Well, it's the same stuff as is in the book. I was very careful as I wrote the book to tr- not assume it one or the other, whether home seeker or householder. So for somebody who's a home seeker, it's the same thing. What do you need? What are you looking for? How do you get the information out there? And you start knocking, knocking on people's doors, as it were. You say, you start telling people, I'm looking, I'm looking. This is what I want to look for. And if you're a home seeker, you've got a location maybe in mind, but you know, I would certainly use church communities. I'm looking, I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, I'm a whatever it is. I go to bed at nine o'clock night. I get up at six. I'm gone Monday through Friday. I would love to live with somebody. I have a cat. I, whatever, you know, it's, it's the same stuff. It is the same stuff. But it, it has, you have to start talking to people about it. And I'm, I have noticed, and I'm, in fact, I've got one happening right now, it's sort of on email, uh, that people are reluctant to announce their interest in this. And that doesn't work. You have to tell people. The best housemate relationships I've heard about come about through friends of friends of friends, through networks. I mean, the Craigslist thing can happen and Silvernet, there are various matching services, but I really believe that the best comes through networks. Does that help? No, it helps a lot. And, and I think it just, it, it again, points out the value of community. There, there's, a, there's a feedback loop here, right? Because the more you invest in community, the more these relationships grow the more your community becomes vested in itself, the more these relationships grow. And, and I am becoming more and more convinced that, you know, the answer to homelessness, the answer to a housing crisis, the answer to the anxiety that people have over their shelter. I don't know if I would say it would be solved, but we could go a long, long, long way towards addressing some of these things with the tools we have by getting beyond... I don't want to call them cultural taboos, but but some some inner angst and anxiety we have that's really imposed on us from our culture about what this is. Yeah, I would say that it's not so much taboos, but it's kind of the assumptions about how we live that are are in the way. I mean, we assume that if we're single, we should live alone. And let me say that I think a lot of people who live alone are kind of hoping the right person's going to come along to be the love interest. And living in shared housing does not eliminate (laughs) the the possibility of dating and finding a spouse. In fact, the, the three women who own the house together, they lived in it for 10 years and they sold it. Two of them moved to Florida They shared a condo there. They were expecting to be there for the rest of their lives. One of them fell in love. And the other one who who was in Pittsburgh also fell. So shared housing doesn't necessarily mean you're not ever going to have that other hope of the love relationship, but it does might make you more loving to find that person (laughs) and not so lonely and anxious. Right. 
Yeah, because we do think about like creating our own nest often in the context of dating and in the context of finding that relationship. And taboo is the wrong word, uh, but it's, it's, I think, the cultural norm, right? The expectation of, of society needs to shift. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so, too. And I want to say this because you're strong towns, that something that's specific that might be able to happen is to start thinking about how do we create funding to remodel homes so they're better for shared housing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a you really know, good, right. private entrances, you can move doors and doors and hallways and just make sometimes a little bit of money and a little bit of thinking can make a space much more comfortable for sharing. Anna Maria, if people want to get a hold of you, get a hold of your organization, access some of these resources, what, what's the best way to do that? So we are sharinghousing.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, Sharing Housing. We have a Facebook group, which is Sharing Housing. We have an Instagram group, which is Sharing Housing Community. All of those are ways to reach us and see what we're up okay. to. Okay. And we will put all that in with the notes for this show so people can access that. That's great. Anna Marie, thank you for taking the time. It's been wonderful to, to talk to you, to get to know you, to go through your book. I hope people will think about this, discern a little bit for themselves. If they find interest, get the book, go to your website. You've got courses there that people can take. Go down this path. I, I think we can do a lot of good uh, for ourselves and for others simultaneously by uh, opening our, our hearts and our minds to this idea. So thank you for all the work you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I hope people listening will talk to people they know about this because it may not be for them, but it may be for somebody that they know, you know, Perfect. thank yes. you so much. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.